0: Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy. I'm here with my first cup of coffee. Today is Tuesday, October 15th, and I'm walking over here to sit on the bench by the bird baths since Jackson is so freaking determined to be here. I don't think it's too breezy. I don't often sit on this northwest corner. And I should. It's a nice spot. It just tends to be breezier than others. Uh, yes, he's looking all thwarted now. I'm having green tea today. Feeling in the need of a little uh, 24-hour fast to clear out my system. I ate out several times recently, and that always seems to garp up. My system—it's uh, eating out is hard on you. I'm—you know—remember when I traveled all the time for the day job, and boy, did that just—you know—just wreaks havoc on you. Especially in the U.S., you know, it was nice in Ireland eating so much farm-to-table food. I mean, basically Ireland is farm-to-table; everything is is Irish food, and you know, it's one big farm. <laughs> the whole island. So that was great. Um, You know, the U.S., there's just uh, so much crap in the food, especially restaurant food. You know, then sugars and salts and everything, they make it all tasty. So we um, went out last night to La Choza, which is really excellent northern New Mexican food, Uh, great margaritas. One of my sorority sisters from college was in town with her boyfriend. Glenna was my sorority sister um, she lives in Chicago and is a high-powered finance type person equities analyst so I say say that pretending as if I really know what that means but I think she mainly advises people where to invest their money she was we were talking about some of the gig economy companies and which ones are good and Which one's less so? So it was interesting to talk to her. I saw her a few years ago when we were at our um, chapter's 100th anniversary. I was, um, I am a Gamma Phi Beta, for those of you who know or care about such things. And that was at Washington University in St. Louis. Phi chapter. The chapters were listed, um, were given a Greek letter according to their um, founding. So if you know your Greek alphabet, you'll know that Phi chapter was one of the earlier chapters that was established by the sorority. Now they're up to, once they got through, (laughs) this little goldfinch wants to come into the birdbath pretty badly. Keep seeing Jackson, though. He's having to stay out in the open. I guess little birdie can wait. I do think it helps that I'm sitting here. So so anyway, the sorority like down into I know they're certainly into the double names they might be into the they once they got to the to Omega, they started over again with like alpha 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 beta. And so I don't know if they've like come all the way around again and going to like beta alpha, beta beta. But, uh, yeah, so I saw her when we were there for that anniversary, and it was really nice to reconnect with her. That was one thing that was really cool about my sorority was, you know, that there were just really awesome women in it, Um, smart, you know, it was a kind of, um, you know, a private liberal arts college that was fairly selective in admission anyway. And, uh, and we were known as the, the smart girl chapter, <laughs> which is funny because really you couldn't get into the school unless you were a smart girl, but I think it sort of depended on your, uh, I don't know, priorities, priorities. Uh, you know, it was the eighties. There were a lot of women at the university who were there for the, for their MRS degree, as we called it. Um, I said that to the daughter of a friend not long ago, and the daughter was totally perplexed, and the mom had to gently explain that the MRS degree meant getting to be a missus, getting to get married. And the daughter was just kind of gently horrified. (laughs) She was like, why would someone go to college just to get married? it's like, ah, yes. Ah, yes, grasshopper. Why, indeed. (laughs) But, uh, Yeah you know beg your uh, a rich successful husband uh, it was considered a successful path for many for quite some time probably still is but we were um, the chapter the sorority that had the highest gpa and we were not known for partying <laughs> which was to our detriment at times it was kind of funny because Glenna and i were discussing you know just catching up on gossip you know, like, who have you been in touch with? What's such-and-so doing? That sort of thing, as you do with old college friends. And only we were focused on the soror. And uh, her boyfriend said, Yes, I was a, a GDI, which stands for Goddamn Independent. And I said, Yeah, we're familiar with the acronym. You know, Heard it many, many times over the year. And it, it's funny because... I've had plenty of people give me shit for being in a sorority, but I've never given anyone else shit for not being in a fraternity or a sorority. I think it's funny that even now, low these many decades after college, people want to point out that they were not in a fraternity or sorority. It's like, well, that's great. You know, everyone should do what they want to do. Um, I greatly valued being in the Sora. I learned a lot from it. Um, and I am still in touch with a lot of those women. And even the ones that I don't really talk to much. Um, you know, I like hearing about their lives. They're doing out there doing amazing things in the world. So it's, it's cool to have that network and that continuity and touch base with people from time to time. But I stuffed myself with a margaritas, sopapillas. What else did I had? I had a blue corn burrito, a chili relleno, and what was the other thing that was um, maybe one of the enchiladas? That was all delicious, but... Yeah, probably more food than I needed to eat over the course of a couple days. I'd really been craving sopapillas lately though, so that was um, good to get my sopapilla fix on. And now now we do the repentance, the penitent drinking of green tea. But I'm like not even remotely hungry, so it's a good day to do a little fasting and cleansing. You know, I'm seeing so much on social media about intermittent fasting being bad, that it's just another kind of dieting and that it's really a starvation and people shouldn't do it. And I understand the point um, because, you know, there there is a lot of stuff about, you know, people having unhealthy relationships with, with food and eating and with body image and so forth, but You know, I learned how to, you know, to do intermittent fasting as part of um, a health regime. You know, it's part of oriental medicine that you occasionally do a 24-hour fast just to help clear your system. It's not for weight loss, necessarily. It's just to, um, well, kind of, it helps with, I mean, it's been shown that it really helps if you tend to be, um insulin insensitive I think that's what it is you know but it's not even pre-diabetic but if you know I've diabetes in my family and so it's a good way to um, resensitize your system to your own natural insulin to you know, do a 24-hour fast but you know so what you do is just not eat after dinner the night before and you go till evening and drink a lot of clear liquids So that's my, um, I don't know, I think maybe some of the dieting people have gotten a hold of, you know, the intermittent fasting as a way of, you know, like you can, it's another form of binge and purge, and that's where it becomes a problem. So I got good words yesterday. Um, I got something like 2,500 words yesterday. So that was great. I think I finally finished um, obsessively tweaking the first 25%. I've passed 30,000 words now and I'm accelerating. I'm accepting that a whole lot of I guess this book that I thought would be all about wars and battles is also really a whole lot about the relationships of the people and so I've kind of settled into just letting there be as many conversations as there need to be. Um uh, It occurred to me that, you know, one of the things about writing a book that's largely about a big war is that you really do have to establish why the people are fighting, what's worth fighting for. And it's something that I believe in very much is the, you know, connections between people and the profound importance of loving each other, of family and friendships found family so so yeah i'm just uh settling into that settling into it and enjoying and not worrying about it anymore which is always key when you are a person who writes for discovery yes you really just can't obsess too much i'm sure there will be plenty of horrific war to come so we might as well enjoy the good stuff while we can right me and my characters. I'm trying to think of what else I have in my mind. And right now it's it's mainly story. I'm thinking about this story a whole lot. I'm also thinking about this story idea that I have had for a really long time. Um, more than ten years. Probably something coming on. Like, well, maybe 10 years, something like that. It was one of those great inspirations that hit me. And I spoke with my then editor, Karina, about it then. And she replied, um, she said, please don't tell me you're thinking about writing in yet another genre. Because at that point, so this must be like 10 years ago, a little less. Because I had written my um, erotic romance, Sapphire. She had edited that and Karina published it. And then I'd done Rogue's Pawn. The fantasy romance that's um, the first in the Covenant of Thords trilogy. So when I posed her this idea and she said that, I was like, oh, so I guess that's a no. And I'm kind of sorry that I let her shut me down on that. I mean, she had a valid point and Karina wouldn't have published it. But I'm sorry I didn't write it then. And I still, this idea keeps coming back to me. And I think I really want to write it. Um, You know, Elizabeth Gilbert's, I know I keep coming back to Elizabeth Gilbert. I'm sorry if you guys, you know, send me a comment if you want me to stop talking about my issues with big magic. But um, Elizabeth Gilbert would say that, you know, like if the idea comes to you and you don't do anything with it, then it'll move on and go to somebody else. And I don't know if I believe that's true. I think, um yeah, I think that, you know, it's uh, sorry, I'm thinking this through as I talk. Um, you know, there's also, you know, like the adage that opportunity only knocks once. You know, that you have one chance, one chance to snag an opportunity. You have one chance to write an idea. And she'll say that the idea will hang around for a little while and that it'll, you know, come back a few times, but then it'll move on. And I think that that opportunities and ideas never leave us, that they are always there waiting for us to, to take them. Um, they might be slightly different by the time we're ready, but I think especially with, um, I don't know, creative ideas or dreams, you know, like things like, oh, you know, opening an herb farm or, you know, any of those dreams that we have like that where we think, you know, someday I'd really love to do this thing. And you keep returning to that idea and turning it over in your head for years. I don't think that dies. I don't think that door slams shut at some point. I think that you acknowledge the idea and you continue to feed it. And then when the time is right, you can take it. And arguably, the time for this book has never been right. But it is tied up with uh, the idea of the sorority and the network of women. And so I think seeing Glenna last night made me think about it again. And I, I'm going to talk to Agent Sarah about it and see, see what she says and I mentioned it once before, and I think she was uncertain, but, you know, she's, Sarah will also never tell me not to write something, but it is a genre departure, and maybe what I want right now is a genre departure. I think it's good. You know, we we get this advice as writers to write in one genre to establish yourself, and it's not bad advice. In fact, it's probably good advice, and uh people often ask me about the fact that I did not follow this advice <laughs> um you know not only my editor semi scathing remark about oh, I was already writing in two genres and then at after that I well I went on to write in fantasy romance but I was writing in you know like erotic hot contemporary and fantasy romance to begin with and yeah it arguably made things more difficult for me to establish my brand but a counter to that is that diversifying into different genres uh, helps helps keep our careers vital because the publishing market goes up and down and, and certain genres fall out of fashion and you have to be ready to reinvent and transition to another one. Um, that's a purely business perspective. And then on the creative side... Most authors I know don't think in terms of genre when they're writing a story. We have to figure out the genre after we write the story. You know, for us, it's story first. And then the squeezing it into a genre definition is part of the business side, part of the sales phase. And I think we do... You know, if we want to preserve that delight and gladness, if we want to honor inspiration, no matter how you think about it, then, you know, we write the stories that come to us. It's a piece of advice that I give, um, you know, when I do mentoring. I do a fair amount of mentoring, especially through CEFWA. And I ask, when writers tell me that they are looking for an agent, one of the things I will bring up to them is I will say, there are a couple of different kinds of agent and it depends you have to figure out what you want you know because everybody you know like picks out their dream agent you know the, all the advice is oh you know pick the agent that you know represents authors you love or books that you love and and that's valid but there's also a very real difference between agents that I think a lot of um, especially newbie authors don't Realize You don't realize this until you're pretty deep into your career, actually, in most cases. And that's, do you want to work with an agent, like Agent Sarah is with me, where we discuss books, ideas, concepts, and in terms of the market, in terms of what she thinks she can sell at a given time. And it doesn't mean that she tells me what to write. But given a list of ideas, she'll say, this is the one. This is the timely one. And then she'll help me tweak it to to steer it a little bit more for that market. But for many authors, this is not something that they wanna do. They want to be able to, and I know plenty of people like this, they want to be able to follow their creative muse, however it appears to them, and write exactly the thing that they want to write And then hand it to their agent who then attempts to sell it. And and a lot of agents operate that way. There are some agents I know of who just who don't really have contracts even with their authors. They'll just say, Yeah, I'll represent you, but on a project-by-project basis. So when you have something, sell it to me and I'll or send it to me and I'll decide if I can sell it. So You know, you could see that that's a really, really different kind of relationship because the author is operating pretty much autonomously. They write a book and send it to their agent, and the agent may or may not want to sell it. Whereas with Sarah, I don't even go very far on an idea unless she thinks she can sell it. Um, You know, so that's why I would have that conversation with her. But if I really believe passionately in the idea, which I clearly do because it keeps coming back to me, then I I think I can, you know, she'll, she'll help me with it. So, but that's a good thing. It's a good thing to keep in mind so far as what you're looking for in that agent relationship. And as far as, like, ideas coming back to you, I think I've mentioned this before, but I heard... Um, John Scalzi and Mary Robinette Cowell discussing this, uh, you know, sort of the perennial question of where do you get your ideas? And Scalzi had an interesting thing to say about it because he said that, you know, really what people are asking when they ask that question, and and Mary Robinette had interesting points on this too, that, you know, because authors tend to reply, Getting ideas isn't the problem. It's writing them. And that which is not a helpful answer. And really what people want to know is how do you know which are the good ideas? Which are the ones to go with. And so that's part of what I'm talking about here. You know, if you want to take market considerations into account, then you discuss with your agent or with a crit partner or mastermind group or whatever however you're operating. But Scalzi said that when he gets an idea, he doesn't write it down, that he just puts it aside. And then if it's still there the next morning, he noodles on it a little bit. And then he sets it aside again. And he'll do that sometimes for years. Keep If the idea sticks around, he'll keep giving a little bit of mental time until he decides to write the book. So I think that's a good contrast To Elizabeth Gilbert's perspective that the idea will leave again. Um, You know, maybe a a good idea is the one that is persistent. And I think what it comes down to is, is, you know, of course there is no one true path. There is no answer. Um, Unfortunately, sorry, no magic pill. And we're all sort of figuring this out as we go. And on that note, I think I shall go figure out this book as I go. I hope you all have a fabulous Tuesday, and uh, yeah, maybe go dig up a few of those dream ideas and give them a little mental attention, see if they're still alive. Take care. Bye-bye.